Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two no longer teenage but still mutant trivia turtles. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. And Jordan, today we're going to be talking about a franchise that occupied a, and still does, a massive space in my heart, as I'm sure it does for any number of people of our age group. We are talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We're talking about the comic. We're talking about the TV show. We're talking about the movie, (laughs) the first one. We may touch on the action figures. I think the comic was the only one of these that I didn't have my hands on as a kid because as as well, well, as we'll talk about, they were both scarce and very violent. Um, I had a boatload of the action figures. I played the arcade games, shouts to Turtles in Time. uh, (laughs) And I rewatched that first movie endlessly. And the second one too with Vanilla Ice rapping, go ninja, go ninja, go. You know, you didn't see that one? Oh, that's great. It's great. But we're not going to talk about that movie, though. Um, what about you, bud? You're going to get a lot of blank stares. Yeah, you don't strike me as a turtle kind of guy. <sighs> no, you know, I was more of a Thomas the Tank Engine kind of guy at around this time <laughs> of my life. Yeah, I completely and utterly miss this. Um, it felt vaguely offensive to my Italian relatives. <laughs> that is my one and only takeaway from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as a kid. Yeah, I wish I could add anything to this at all. Until speaking with you, I had no idea if this was primarily a movie property, a TV show property, a video game property, a comic property, or what. Um, Yeah, for all my collecting habits, I was never a comics guy and not really an action figure kid either. Oh, okay. And I don't know, everything about it just seemed too, like, goofy to me. The show is goofy. Yeah. The the first movie is actually, I think, a little bit deeper than most people give it credit for. There's like actual character beats. The fight scenes are a little more like not violent, but they do have a little bit more teeth in them because they course corrected it on the second movie and it just becomes like three stooges fight scenes. I mean, that was what my understanding is that it started off with a very violent adult comic, mm-hmm. then went to a 
very kid-friendly TV show so that they could make action figures yep. to tie in for this, this very kid-friendly TV show. And then they made a movie based on the TV show that then kind of reverted back to being super dark and scary. And some people, as we'll talk about, were kind of upset about this. Yeah. So now that you've basically given away the entire narrative <laughs> arc of this episode, thanks, folks, for listening. Um, so from the Marvel Comics connection to the Turtles, to the strange roundabout role of L.A. stand-up comedy in getting the film made, to the mind-boggling live music music tour that the turtles undertook in their uh prime years we'll say <laughs> here's everything you didn't know about the teenage mutant ninja turtles sorry yes <laughs> Two artists, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, were struggling New England comic book writers when Eastman one night happened to sketch a turtle wearing a mask and armed with a set of nunchucks in November of 1983. Here's a question. How many joints do you think were required <laughs> to lead up to the point where he's sketching a turtle wearing a mask armed with nunchucks? No comment. In May of 2012, that original drawing of the turtle sold at auction for 71000 nearly $72,000. You know what I have to say about that, right? You sure do. Belongs in a museum. There it is. Pete drew a cooler one, Eastman told the, <laughs> Eastman told the Week in 2015. Then, of course, I had to top his sketch, so I drew four of them standing in a dramatic pose. That was in pencil, but Pete inked it and added Teenage Mutant to the Ninja Turtle part. We were just pissing our pants that night, to be honest, saying, this is the dumbest thing ever. It's just like small boy Mad Libs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the pair's comics imprint, Mirage Studios, was founded with money from a tax refund that they got and a loan from Eastman's uncle. And Laird was so moved by this gesture that he would later found the Zarek Foundation, which for 20 years awarded self-publishing grants to comic book creators, as well as qualified charitable and nonprofit organizations. He gave back, in other words. They called it Mirage because in Eastman's word, there wasn't an actual studio, only kitchen tables and couches with lap boards. <laughs> In May of 1984, Laird and Kevin Eastman self-published the first black-and-white issue of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at an initial print run of 3,000, and they fleshed out the concept based on a number of other titles and influences from around this time. Marvel's The New Mutants, which you say is a spiritual descendant of X-Men, which featured Teenage Mutants. Uh, there's Cerebus, which starred an anthropomorphic aardvark that occasionally cosplayed as Conan the Barbarian. Yes. And Frank Miller's Ronin and Daredevil, which melded nightmarish taxi driver-esque visions of New York with ninjas and samurais. Yeah, Frank Miller might be one of the most um, New York-hating <laughs> comic book artists. He apparently was mugged here like twice when he first moved here to work on comics and never got over it. And so like... Sin City, uh, The Dark Knight Returns, like all of his big pioneering comic book works portray the big city as like a dystopian hellhole, which can be directly traced back to the time that he was mugged. <laughs> In fact, speaking of Daredevil, the Turtles origin story is an explicit nod to that hero, Marvel hero, which is the story of a young boy who gains superpowered senses, except for sight, after being blinded by a bunch of toxic goo that falls off a truck. Not unlike Alex Mack. We should totally do Alex Mack. Uh, that'd be good. Uh, Eastman Laird reasoned that at least some of that goo must have filtered down into the sewer and had an effect on some of his denizens. I, I, I mean, to quote Dr. Evil, I don't know animals, but do <laughs> turtles 
live in the sewer? It's it's a, it's possible. A few of them, maybe. Uh, the turtle's mentor, the mutated rat's splinter, who, oh, yes, rats live in sewers. Maybe the rat was going to eat the turtles, and then when they got all cute, he was like, I can't eat you now. You're my adopted offspring. We're riffing. We're reaching for stuff here. Cute or dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's another number of Daredevil references. So Splinter, the rat mentor, is a riff <laughs> on the guy who trains Daredevil to master his powers, who is known simply as Stick. And the turtle's foes, the ninja clan, the foot, uh, is the logical counterpoint to the hand, which is the ninja clan, the Daredevil battles in Miller's run on the title. I find it funny that Big Bad the Shredder, meanwhile, has no such Marvel analog. Eastman literally just looked at a cheese grater and thought that it could be weaponized. Again, how many joints? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to make our villain this big cheese grater. It's just going to be a cheese grater. Just, have you ever really looked at a cheese grater, man? Like, <laughs> you, could really, you could really hurt someone with one of these. <laughs> Who's the mutated rat mentor in your life? Robert Plant. <laughs> no, it's got to be somebody scrappier than that. Oh, Tim Armstrong from Rancid. Oh, yeah. yeah that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, the pair initially wanted to give their creations some authentically Japanese names, but Laird said they simply couldn't think of any. <laughs> Not big Toshiro Mufune fans here. Probably hadn't seen any number of Kurosawa samurai, samurai yeah. movies. And uh, simply went with the four Renaissance artists they were most familiar with, aided by one of Laird's art history books. The color coding of the characters, Raphael Red, Leonardo Blue, Donatello Purple, Michelangelo Orange, came via the animated series as the original comic book was in black and white. So they were differentiated in the comic only by their weapons. Raphael has size, Leonardo has swords, Donatello has a bow staff, Michelangelo has nunchucks. They also initially misspelled Michelangelo's name using the Anglo spelling of Michael rather than the Italian spelling without the A. Wasn't Donatello originally supposed to be Gian Lorenzo Bernini? <laughs> Antonioni? <laughs> I think there was supposed to be a um, a fifth one, too, named, I swear it was something like Kirby. <laughs> oh, maybe, because they were big Jack Kirby nerds, uh, who is uh, Marvel, and I think he also wrote for DC, but one of the towering figures of you know mid-century American comics. Anyway, we do not have the time or the space to get into the cast of characters that sprawled from the comics to the show to the toys, but there's one hilarious one that I really want to highlight. Shredder created an answer to the Turtles, a team called the Punk Frogs, <laughs> and they are named after Shredder's personal heroes, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Rasputin. Uh, two of them in the 2012 cartoon are voiced by Maurice LaMarche, a.k.a. The Brain from Pinky and the Brain, beloved by this podcast for his Orson Welles impression. Yes. But uh, for some reason, Attila the Frog speaks like Marlon Brando in The Godfather Apocalypse Now. So I don't know why I threw that in there. I just thought it was funny. Uh, the comics were a big hit right off the bat. And while it might seem counterintuitive, the alternative comics scene of the time was rather bullish on black and white. You know, you think of comics as brightly colored things. Not so at the time. Gilbert and Jamie Hernandez's Love and Rockets, the aforementioned Cerebus, and Yusagi Yojimbo featuring an anthropomorphic samurai rabbit were all black and white. They were all hits. Incredibly, Yusagi Yojimbo had nothing to do with the turtles, despite both of them being martial artist anthropomorphic animals, but they would have crossover issues. I think I had his action figure. Um <laughs> 
Because TMNT's initial run was so limited and the market was so hot, within months the issues were selling at up to 50 times their initial value. And obviously the success of the title inspired a rush of copycats like, and I swear I'm not making these up, adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters, <coughs> preteen dirty jean kung fu kangaroos, and adult thermonuclear samurai elephants. Although that last title eventually morphed into the much cleaner title of Power Pachyderms. Oh. Um, that kangaroo one is funny because it's actually written by a woman named Lee Mars, who's a truly pioneering feminist underground artist. I think that one was written as a, a parody. Capitalism is a disease. <laughs> uh, did you know that in the UK, the local censors were, I guess, super sensitive to the inherent violence of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, so they changed their name to... Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Ah. And I guess since nunchucks and other chain sticks were banned in the UK, every scene from the first season of, of the show that showed nunchucks were either cut or they did the Batman thing where they replaced the shots with stills containing words like a biff. <laughs> Which is great. So that's why by season four of the show, Michelangelo started using a turtle shelled grappling hook. And by season five, he stopped carrying nunchucks entirely. And while we're on the topic of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the UK, let's talk about how they caused an environmental crisis, shall we? Please. So fans across the pond began buying red-eared sliders, which are a type of turtle, in droves, only to realize that turtles in real life are not as dynamic and active <laughs> as the ones in the show. Uh, so as a result, dissatisfied customers released turtles into the wild, which caused a Whoopsie. serious ecological problem that continues to this day. It's an invasive species, baby. Yeah, I think it's like one of the most. Good Lord. Um, but getting back to happier times, in 1986, <laughs> the success of the comic books puts Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the radar of a New York licensing agent named Mark Friedman. And Friedman was in the process of founding his own licensing company, Surge Licensing, and had previously handled the licensing of Hanna-Barbera's library of characters. And he said, I was at a low point in my licensing career. This is him talking to the New York Times in 1989. Then someone told me about a Teenage Mutant Turtle. I was looking for a property, but I thought it was a joke i just want to I he, read that in clint eastwood's voice i was at a low point and someone told me about a teenage mutant ninja turtle stares manfully off into the distance <laughs> so this freeman guy pitched the idea of licensing the turtles to eastman and layard the uh creators of teenage mutant ninja turtles as a toy line initially and they inked a $150,000 deal with Playmates Toys to start a line after being rejected by a number of toy companies. Sort of a theme for this. The teenage, Shockingly, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was a tough sell yeah. for toy makers, television networks, and film studios. Um, but however, Playmates, as we touched on at the top of the episode, insisted that a cartoon series for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles be produced so that they could make the toys as sort of a tie-in brand. And this tracks with trends of the time. This was the era in which very kind of adult film properties were being marketed with toy lines and animated series. You have G.I. Joe and Transformers, but you also have the animated series based on Rambo and RoboCop. Uh, mm -hmm. And you say there were toy lines around this time based on the Alien and Predator characters. 
along with Swamp Thing, Mm -hmm. which, despite the cheesy live-action movies in the 80s, is a comic in which the main love interest has hallucinogenic sex with the titular sentient mass of plant life. I'm not familiar. I'll take your word for it. In the same run of comics, that same character is later raped by her dead uncle who is possessing her husband at the time. Point is, Swamp Thing should not have been marketed to children. And I had a lot of those action figures and watched that cartoon. (laughs) They also made a cartoon series and action figure line about the Toxic Avenger. Toxic Avenger is a movie made by Troma, who are famously like one of the goriest film studios of all time. It's just this whole Wild West era, like... You know, I remember those Alien and Predator action figures. I had a bunch of them. I should not have been watching those movies at that age. Anyway, Playmates partners with the animation studio Murakami Wolf Swenson, who uh, made this Toxic Avenger cartoon, and they begin developing the series. Many of the Turtles' signatures, like Heroes in a Half Shell and Turtle Power, came from these initial brainstorming sessions. And it is important to note here that the original comics were super, super violent. And uh, they moved away from this tone for the show because it's a toy tie-in. Even the movie was too violent for the Playmates people, and they refused to make tie-in toys for the first movie. Uh, I guess, I mean, like, even in the original cut of the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, they had a kid get beaten to death by Tatsu yeah. before the MPAA insisted they add sounds of the kid breathing and yeah. a voice off screen saying, oh, he's going to be all right. They ADR that in. It's so weird. Uh, here we go. Teenage Mutant Ninja talent. Grab bag of voice actors involved in the show. Cam Clark voiced Leonardo. He also voiced the lead character Kaneda in the English dub of the groundbreaking Japanese anime Akira and the bad guy in the similarly groundbreaking video game Metal Gear Solid. Oh, yeah, that for somebody who was not into like that many violent games and stuff as a kid, I remember Metal Gear Solid very well, probably because it was the only PlayStation game that was sort of like Goldeneye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really wanted Goldeneye. Uh, Barry Gordon, the voice of Donatello, was in The Girl Can't Help It in 1956. (laughs) What? Like, that's like the ground zero of rock movies with like. Jane Mansfield and Little Richard and I think like Clyde McFadder. For a guy doing the voice of an animated turtle, this man had a career in almost every classic television show ever. Dick Van Dyke Show, Jack Benny, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Leave it to Beaver, Dennis the Menace, The Don Rickles Show, and The Bob Crane Show before he became a prolific voice actor, and the longest-serving head of the Screen Actors Guild. Wow. Well, tie me up and beat me with a tripod. Folks, if you want to Google Bob Crane, do that, but not on your work computer. Uh, Robert Paulson voiced Raphael, but he would switch to Donatello for the 2012 cartoon. That guy was Pinky in Pinky and the Brain, and he was oh, Yakko wow. the Animaniac, and Carl in Jimmy Neutron. And he played the Jim Carrey role in the short-lived Mask animated series. He was Haji in Johnny Quest. He played Arthur in The Tick. Uh, he was also in Biker Mice from Mars, and he was in Chippendale, and Darkwing Duck, and Fraggle Rock. Wow. I just love the fact that there were like two dozen voice actors who did every single show for like two decades. Townsend- oh, yeah. Who was, um, what the hell is his name? Uh, Billy West. Billy West Billy did West everybody. From, he yeah, did I, Doug. Yeah. He did Ren and Stimpy. He did Philip K. Fry and Futurama. The Red Eminem. Uh, oh, yeah. Townsend Coleman, who played Michelangelo, was the voice of The Tick, a cartoon series I also watched. Spoon! He was also in Fraggle Rock, and he was in the Teen Wolf animated series, which I did not know was a did thing. Did not. And he yeah. was in Fern Gully. 
Oh, yeah. I don't remember uh, who, but he's in Ferngully. Yeah, I looked it up and I wasn't familiar with the character, so um, I, I, I lost interest. James Avery, Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince, played Shredder. And then the guy who took over that role from him, Jim Cummings, was Winnie the Friggin' Pooh and Tigger <laughs> and Darkwing Duck. And he took over Scar's song, Be Prepared, in The Lion King when Jeremy Irons developed voice problems trying to sing it. Wow, these are champions all. Insane. All of the voice actors perform their roles together in the same room to preserve chemistry. And that was something that was really rare, right? Yeah. Like one of the few exceptions were The Simpsons. And I think we talked about it on Beauty and the Beast, too, because mm -hmm. they did the same thing with Belle and the Beast. It's something that Fred Wolf took so seriously, he told voice actors that if someone couldn't make it to a recording session, they would be replaced. And that's why some of the characters have alternative voice actors listed in their credits, because if they uh -huh. had a time conflict, they would just cast the voice of someone else. Um, despite that bit of production-related callousness, the voice of April O'Neil, Renee Jacobs, said it did create the intended atmosphere of camaraderie. She said, uh, we played off each other. There was a lot of ad-libbing. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? 
So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, folks, we must get into the little segment I like to call Teenage Mutant Ninja Slang. Um, because while we're at it, where the hell does Cowabunga come from? I'm so glad you asked. Jordan? Well, it actually comes from the 1950s children's show classic, Howdy Doody. And it's said by the... Um, the problematic. Problematic character, Chief Thunderthud, as a sign of frustration. His friend was Chief Featherman. But what do you expect? This was the show that popularized the term peanut gallery. That's where all the kids sat off screen. But Howdy Doody was like the kid show of the 50s. Yeah. It's like a huge deal. Uh, has a absolutely horrifying character. Please, if you've never, if, if you're not familiar, if you don't know what a Howdy Doody is, you don't need to find out. And if, especially this, this, if you're afraid of clowns or ventriloquist yeah, dummies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow it got adopted by surfers in the following decade. And in Paul McFedery's book, Weird Word Origins, uh, he points to the 60s TV show Gidget as an influence. I guess one of the characters would yell Kawabunga as he ran his surfboard into the water. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles writer David Wise has claimed that he came up with making the word Kawabunga Michelangelo's catchphrase. As of the first episode, when Michelangelo surfs over an object because he had a memory of a similar scene Charles M. Schultz drew in Peanuts with Snoopy. And animator Fred Wolf has claimed that it was actually his suggestion to make it a catchphrase. And Michelangelo voice actor Townsend Coleman has apparently claimed that he was the one who invented this. He said he just improvised it. Uh, so the jury's still out on why Cowabunga entered the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle universe. But the coda to all this is that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle creators Eastman and Laird were sued for $5 million <laughs> by Buffalo Bob Smith, the host of Howdy Doody, uh, because he claimed that they stole his line. Cowabunga, and I guess they settled for fifty thousand dollars. So Oof. not a, not the five million. Yeah, not what Buffalo Bob wanted. So I guess Buffalo Bob made this word up wholesale. Yeah. Then is what you're saying? Wow. Yeah, I think he was trying to do some kind of racist, like Native American, like sounding word. Mm. So writer David Wise had just finished working on Transformers, and he was actually hoping for some downtime when he got the call to do TMNT. As a self-professed comics freak, he owned the first seven issues of the comic, and he took the job on the spot. But that said, he was not the animation studio's first choice. That would be Chuck Lorre, who went on to create two of the most profitable sitcoms of all time, Two and a Half Men and The Big Bang Theory. Lorre, who at the time was a bit of a tunesmith bit of a song and dance, kind of a Broadway Danny Rose sort of character. Uh, he wrote Debbie Harry's uh, 1986 track, French Kissin' in the USA. What? Chuck Lorre wrote the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant... He wrote that theme song what? with his then-writing partner, I had no idea. Dennis Brown. Not the uh, reggae singer Dennis Brown, sadly enough. And hold on to your hats, because this is one of those truth-is-stranger-than-fiction moments. 
The showrunner's original choice for the theme song were the actual Turtles, as in the happy together 60s pop band, The Turtles. Um, and, and Lori said in 2012 in an interview, I wanted to do the theme song for The Turtles, the show, the minute I heard about it. But the original Turtles were given the job, if I recall correctly. They were a legit group. They were deep in the whole Laurel Canyon scene. And when the Turtles split in the late 60s, the two main guys, Mark Bowman and Howard Kalin, joined Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention. And they also made some great stuff under the name Flo and Eddie. I think they were tight with Keith Moon, too. So these guys were, like, deep in the scene. And Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon wrote some songs for for them, and they helped him out get his start. However, the band bailed on the job, and the show's producer went back to Lori saying, you have 48 hours, go. (laughs) He and Brown banged it out in an afternoon and booked an L.A. studio from 12 a.m. to 8 a.m. one night because it was the cheapest time block available, and their budget for the demo was $2,000. He also said they submitted the demo with all of these ad-libs, the like, heroes in a half shell, turtle power. Those were ad-libs that they put on the demo. That demo ended up being taken as the master version that the production used. So that's why all that stuff is in there. Oh, I love it. Writer Wise found the task of characterizing the grim, indistinct turtles from the comics challenging. So he took a very literal approach uh, with each one embodying one word from the title. Inspired by other classic foursomes like the Marx Brothers and the Beatles. I, I I, I have to say... Okay, teenage, sure, I get that one being the kind of goofy, dumb one. Mutant, I don't know how you'd illustrate that, but maybe kind of being a weirdo. Ninja, okay, being a really good fighter. Turtle. <laughs> well, how much would it suck to be the turtle whose defining characteristic is being I, a turtle? I cut this, but now that you're forcing my hand, I'll, I'll explain. Teenage was Michelangelo because he was the unserious, goofy one. Mutant, okay. he simply took the idea of being a sci-fi sort of influenced term and made Donatello the mutant because he was the tech guy constantly inventing okay. new science fiction fantastical <laughs> ninja was um Leonardo because he had the two swords and he was the best fighter and he was the leader and turtles was Raphael and this is a bit of a stretch because he said we needed a character who was in on the joke who found all of this to be as absurd as the audience would and so was constantly cracking wise at it so all of Raphael's meta winks at the camera and sort of sarcastic remarks about how absurd the whole show is, that was where that came from. Um, now that I've read all that highfalutin garbage, I have more highfalutin comparisons to make. Um, in his mind, in Wise's mind, each one embodied one word from the title, and then they were also inspired by classic pop culture foursomes like the Marx Brothers and the Beatles. Raphael was Groucho Marx, the wiseacre. Leonardo is Zeppo, Marx, the serious one. Donatello is the Chico of the group, the schemer who's not as smart as he thinks he is. And Michelangelo is Harpo. Now, for the Beatles, he had Raphael's John, Donatello is George, Leonardo is Paul, and Michelangelo is Ringo. So I'd like you to, to debate that. Okay, yeah. I mean, as the resident Beatles guy, I have to say, it's my duty to inform you that the, the Marx-Beatles comparisons, they don't really correlate. Leonardo... Zeppo, the serious one, mm-hmm. but he's also Paul. Mm. Paul's not the serious one. George is the serious mm. one. So they don't they don't correlate. Mm. I, I think I mean it's a flawed premise because the Beatles and the Marx Brothers don't have. How do you, you know, feel about Michelangelo as Ringo? Um, I, I I don't know the 
turtles well enough to oh, make okay. an educated. Okay. Har- well, Harpo was the silent one. Harpo was, as the Marx brother was the was the silent one, right? He walked around with a bicycle horn. I don't know, dude. You're making me get so that kind of works. <laughs> you're making me get way too far into stuff. I don't. Yeah, really Harpo was the one with the with the crazy curly hair. I assume wig and never spoke and would walk around with a horn. And he was in the I Love Lucy episode when Lucy thinks she's looking at a mirror and they're like mimicking each other's movements. So he was a very gifted physical comedian, always in the trench coat, like Ringo in A Hard Day's Night. That one works fine. Uh, Raphael, John, Wiseacre, like Groucho. That works. Yeah, it's the Leonardo, Paul, George connection that throws me. I'm sorry. I just went into a fugue state while you are doing that. Um, <laughs> apparently, his inspiration's from Michelangelo. He said Michelangelo was the Sid Vicious of the Turtles. Sid Vicious was a violent garbage human, so I don't know that that tracks. But he said Sid Vicious couldn't play or sing, but he epitomized punk. Michelangelo mm-hmm. epitomizes what the Turtles are about. Another model, which I believe much more was jeff Sp- jeff spicoli from uh, fast times at ridgemont high she played oh, sean penn yeah sean penn's stoner yeah. character doesn't the kid in the teenage mutant ninja turtles movie i think his name's danny yep. always wear a sid vicious t-shirt sure does oh, so, so yeah, that's a good a connection nod. um wise really was crucial in shaping the show he created the big bad character krang for the show because krang was an alien that meant that the turtles could then beat up robots instead of viciously decapitating human ninjas like they did in the comics. Um, He created the character of April O'Neil as sort of a Lois Lane information conduit for the Turtles to get their news because she's a reporter. Uh, And her look was inspired by Fujiko Mine, a thief who occasionally posed as a news reporter on the anime Lupine III. These people stole a lot from Japan. (laughs) But not names because they couldn't think of any. (laughs) So this wise guy, the writer, he's not thrilled about his experience on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show. And it does seem like he kind of got a bad deal because after the show moved from syndication to CBS, he basically became a showrunner and was writing everything himself without help. It was a job, he said. I saw no benefits from it. I had no licensing money. The more successful it was, the more scripts I had to write. For years, that covered my bills. It was nice to see it get successful, but there was a discomfort of knowing that you're the one guy who's not getting rich. I should have created my own thing. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad for him. Uh, Eastman, because of what, here, here. Eastman and Laird created them, but me and Playmates and Fred Wolf made them popular, is what he said. I put a lot of myself into that show. Again, he takes credit for Cowabunga. The pizzas, that was me. He also (laughs) takes credit for that. All the stuff that everyone loves about them, that was me. But everyone else got rich. (laughs) The pizza. The pizza? That was me. That was me. I'm sorry. That's really funny. Um, Incidentally, neither Eastman or Laird were happy about the direction the TV show took. Eastman said in a 1998 interview for the Comics Journal, there's some stuff we really don't like, and there's some stuff that we wish we hadn't said yes to, stuff that they wanted to do. But we said, we'll always have our black and white comics that tell the kind of stories we want to tell. And Laird wrote on his blog in March 2012, had I, again, speaking solely for myself and not for Kevin, been making the key creative decisions for that first animated series, it would have been very different. Among other things, there would likely have been no moronic henchmen like Bebop and Rocksteady. The Shredder would have been seriously malevolent. April would not have been a reporter and constantly need to be rescued by the Turtles. The Turtles would not have been so ridiculously obsessed with pizza. And the Shredder would not have had as one of his businesses a restaurant called Ninja Pizza. And the show would have not had a joke or a gag every five seconds. 
Um, I also think it's interesting that Laird and Eastman sort of drifted apart. They really hadn't spent much time together since 1993. So like right when the movies start, you know, that's probably what around the third movie when quality starts taking a dive. Um, Yeah. So it sounds like they had a split, which may or may not have been acrimonious. But anyway. The toys hit the market in the summer of 1988 after the show debuted in December of 87, right around my birthday. For the next nine years, Playmates produced around 400 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle figures, as well as dozens of vehicles and playsets. And for the first four years of that stretch, about $1.1 billion worth of toys were sold. Good Lord. Making Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles the number three top-selling toy figures ever at the time behind only G.I. Joe and Star Wars. I absolutely don't have much to say about the toys and apparently neither do you, but (laughs) they are an interesting bit of synergy. Wise, the writer, said that while Playmates were mostly hands-off regarding the show, they would occasionally come to him with some new gadget or vehicle or villain to work into the show to correspond with a toy launch, which is funny. Yeah, it is. Like, uh, the next episode has to be about the garbage uh, SWAT van that we're creating for you. He (laughs) said he was mostly fine with all of these because it did take some of the weight off of him to try and, you know, come up with new stuff. But uh, except for one, Playmates asked him to include a garbage-launching toilet catapult in an episode, which he called the dumbest thing I had ever seen. So he resolved that when it did appear in the show, it never worked correctly. It would always go wrong and blow up in their faces. Now, I heard that garbage-launching toilet catapult was the uh, prototype name for Twitter. <laughs> that was a good one. Thanks. <laughs> Is that off the, off the top of your head? Yeah. Nice. Um, <laughs> teenage Mutant Ninja Movie. At long last, we come to the meat of the story. In 1988, the show was a success, but superhero movies were considered box office poison following the massive flop of Howard the Duck. Interest- That's shocking to me. I didn't realize that superhero movies were ever considered box office poison. Well, so, I mean, given the time we live in well, now, Well, because this is in the extremely specific window when Howard the Duck uh, had flopped hugely. And I think Masters of the Universe was also kind of a flop around this time. And then um, uh, Tim Burton's Batman comes out in 89. And that's kind of what uh, brings them back. Revamps it. Because you also, we'd had like the three Superman sequels, which oh all got Christopher Reeve here. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the most serious interest that Eastman and Laird had received was from B-movie king uh, Roger Corman. Wow. Who pitched, this is wild, pitched Sam Kinison, Gallagher, Billy Crystal, and Bobcat Goldthwaite wearing green paint <laughs> and shells. Eastman told The Ringer in 2020... <laughs> And he, Eastman called it a very hilarious treatment and concept. He is wrong. <laughs> it's just like the drunk Don Draper voice. It's three amigos, but it's four, and they're turtles. Well, we want to get the guy who does the <laughs> voices and the guy who hits stuff with a watermelon, and it'll be turtles. <laughs> and the guy who does Muhammad Ali in a questionable but nonetheless not an accurate impression. Um, but and Sam Kennison. Yeah, who I mean Roger Corman's still alive, so yeah, it's is. not too late. Well, I guess Sam Kennison's not, so <laughs> not too late. <laughs> no. Uh but Gary Proper, a surfer and Gallagher's road manager at the time, thought the turtles had potential and he teamed up with Kim Dawson, who was producing Gallagher's comedy specials at Showtime. So yes, the genesis of this movie has its roots in the people directly connected to watermelon smashing comic Gallagher. 
Proper literally found a copy of Ninja Turtles uh, on a Gallagher tour stop in Detroit. So they bring in a stand-up comic-turned-screenwriter named Bobby Herbeck, who is then writing a film for Golden Harvest, the iconic Hong Kong Kung Fu flick studio, who we uh, ran a bit on in the Bruce Lee episode last time. Tom Gray, Golden Harvest's then head of production, told Bobby to kick rocks, but Herbeck persisted (laughs) for three or four months. Gray told The Hollywood Reporter for their 2015 oral history of the film, Herbeck, to the ringer, he just kept turning down on the picture. He said, finish the f***ing movie I'm paying you for. He wouldn't stop calling the project the Ninja Pinjin Turtles. He said, don't bring me this... Don't I have to switch into the cigar chomping producer yeah. voice. He said, don't bug me with this Ninja Pinjin Turtle shit, Herbs. Call him Herbs. Eventually... Ninja Pinjin. Yeah. Eventually, he realized that they could make this movie for Peanuts in Hong Kong, and Raymond Chow, head of Golden Harvest, greenlit it with a budget of three mil. Not not much. The continual through line for the making of this film is that most of the adults just thought it, they were bad for trying, and then they would like <laughs> consult with their kids or their friends who had kids, and the ch- children would begin levitating off the ground with their eyes glowing, and um, <laughs> that convinced them. <laughs> Talks to have Fox distribute the picture broke down weeks before shooting, and New Line Cinema stepped in at the actual 11th hour. They were headed into pre-production without a U.S. distributor. Um, New Line was still kind of the proverbial new kids on the block. It was referred to in industry circles, perhaps derisively, as the house that Freddy built, because their first release was Nightmare on Elm Street, and and all of its sequels throughout the 80s basically built that studio from the ground up. But... Still, in some ways, this was a shoestring production, Um, except for some establishing shots. None of it is filmed in New York. And, for example, Domino's is in the film because they needed free pizza. (laughs) Even so, the director, Steve Barron, says they ran out of money with like 10 to 12 pages of script left to shoot and had to make it work in the editing bay with uh, the woman who would go on to become Quentin Tarantino's longtime editor, Sally Menke. Good for her, man. (laughs) Working with uh, Quentin Tarantino must qualify you for the sainthood. Uh, Herbeck flies to Northampton, Massachusetts to meet with Eastman and Laird, which did not go well. (laughs) He said, I thought I'm there for a month max. This is to THR. I was wrong. It was six to eight weeks. Never saw two guys who disagreed so much. Peter, from the beginning, he didn't think much of me as a writer. I was a Hollywood type infringing on his artistic chops and characters. But eventually, they reach a rapprochement, and Herbeck flies to London to meet with director Steve Barron, who was then a hotshot music video director coming off some technologically advanced clips for the time, like Michael Jackson's Billie Jean with the sidewalks that light up, AHA's Take On Me, which combined oh. uh, you know, by-hand animation with filmed elements, and Dire Straits' Money for Nothing, which you will remember has some embarrassing uh, computer animation, but still very groundbreaking for its time. Here's a question, and I, I've seen some comments of people talking about our um, Roger Rabbit episode. We know a lot about animation, requesting that we have animation experts on next time we do a show on that. Oh, no, did we get... Heard, heard you. Oh, no, no, no. Just, just They just thought we could get more into the weeds with that. Oh. But, so I want to ask you now, do you think that this, uh, this Steve Barron guy had any conversations with the Who Framed Roger Rabbit people because of the uh, AHA Take On Me video that blended live action oh. and, um, and animation in a really, you know, non-Mary Poppins kind of way? That's a great question. Really... That's a great question because he, he is 
he's London based and they did yeah and they did yeah. Roger Rabbit in London. That is a great question. Hmm. Maybe. It seems plausible to me. Um but crucially Jim Henson's Muppet Shop would be handling the turtles because Baron had worked with them uh-huh. for Henson's TV show, The Storyteller. And they wanted the turtles to be able to do backflips and fight. And so the budget for the Hensons alone was going to come in at $3 million, which was originally what had been budgeted for the whole film. Um, eventually, the film's total price tag ballooned to $13 million. Henson loves Steve, uh, producer Simon Felds told THR. The Creature Shop had never lent their name to an outside project, and I don't think they ever did again. Ooh, yeah, we'll get more on that later, but I don't think Jim Henson was happy with the result of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Mm. While working on Storyteller, Henson had told Baron, On each show, I figure we're going to have to invent one new technology to make each show work. On Turtles, I've got to invent nine. <laughs> Because the actors had to be able to fight in their costumes, they weren't able to use exterior wires or cables to move the faces, um, which is what the easiest solution probably would have been. Um, So there were actually two sets of turtle costumes. One were dubbed the action turtles that didn't have any electronics in them, and one for all of the dialogue scenes that used a state-of-the-art control system called Pupper Tektronics that involved a single puppeteer manipulating a joystick for the character's eyes an electronic glove to work the motion of the jaws, and a headset with infrared trackers tracking the puppeteer's face to work the lips. Yeah, I heard these. I think just the masks alone had something like 15 separate pieces. I mean, it makes. We were talking about this in uh, the Neverending Story episode with Falcor and the rock biter puppets having to have like 20 people just to operate the face one person for an eyebrow even so it's yeah it's all these partially animatronic partially you know puppeteer systems were incredibly difficult i was gonna make a joke about these masks being reused for the dinosaurs tv show in the early 90s but then i did a little more research and apparently the teenage mutant Ninja turtle masks from the first movie were reused for a tv show uh, an extremely obscure one the turtle heads were reported repurposed for an Irish children's TV show called The More Bags, which hmm. ran from 1996 to 1998, which uh, providing the heads for the show's main characters, Molly and Rosa. And they're disguised with fur, but it's pretty easy to tell that these were at one point, hmm. you know, Leonardo and Donatella. Um, so any any uh, fans from fans of the More listening Bags? in? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, But yeah, these whole costumes, they were so incredibly complex. The mechanics and cooling systems for all this machinery was inside each turtle shell, which is pretty ingenious. And the entire thing had to be cast to each individual actor's body. And the actor inside Raphael, a guy by the name of Josh Payas, said that the Jim Henson team told them after the casting process that they kept this in that plaster longer than they needed to to see if we would freak out, which <laughs> was basically a way to test them because being in these costumes would be kind of claustrophobic. Um, Josh Payas later described the experience in the costume as, quote, like being in Grand Central Station at rush hour with a tin can over your head. Uh, And aside from the martial arts training, you know, general and weapon specific, they also had to have extensive rehearsal work alongside the puppeteer responsible for their individual turtles so they could learn their facial movements and time it to the dialogue. I read it took two people to operate the face, and Payas is the only actor who both provided the voice and was also in the suit. Brian Tocci of Revenge of the Nerds and Police Academy fame, voice Leonardo. Corey Feldman did Donatello. 
And Robbie Reese, best known to me as Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch, was Michelangelo. That's insane. And Kevin Clash, who puppeteered Elmo for decades, was Splinter. He was the guy who I yeah. believe was let go. Yeah, yeah. a bit of cloud of sexual abuse allegations. Yeah. yeah. Um, so these guys all got to play bit parts outside of the costumes in the movie. Uh, for example, Josh Payas doubled as a passenger in the back of a cab after Raphael jumps on the hood. Um, Leif Tilden, who played Donatello, explained of Discover his... Discover America? <laughs> it's a Leif Erikson reference in there for you, uh, for you folks. Leif, this thing on. Uh, he explained of his lone run-in with Feldman. I went up to him at the premiere and I said, hey, I play the character you did the voice to. And he just totally dissed me. He didn't want to deal with me whatsoever. It was around the time he got busted for cocaine in the backseat of his convertible or something. All I remember was walking by him, surrounded by cameras, professing his innocence to cocaine right outside the Ninja Turtles premiere. Kids are walking by. Corey Feldman only got a reported $1,500 for the voiceover gig. So maybe that's why he was in a mood. Or the cocaine crash. But yeah, I guess producers basically convinced them like, yeah, this is going to be like a random obscure art movie. Maybe it'll make some money on VHS sales. But uh, that's not true. And then he didn't come (laughs) back for the second Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. But I think they got him back for the third at a time when I think he could have used the $1,500. Hmm. Probably. Uh, Speaking of real life stars, and I guess in this case I use the term star loosely, let's do a little fantasy casting for the character of Casey Jones, a non-costume dude played by a guy I've never heard of, Elias Coteus. First of all, how dare you? Elias Coteus is one of my favorite character actors. He's the bad guy in Fallen, again, uh, um, or the first bad guy in Fallen, uh, opposite Denzel Washington. Uh, he's been in just a ton of stuff. And my favorite name is I interviewed Chris Maloney once. And Chris, yeah, and Chris Maloney and Elias Coteus for a time looked uh, very similar. And they would just get confused uh, between each other. And Chris Maloney told me that one time he was f- uh, filming for Law and Order in Grand Central Station. And um, someone came up to him with a copy of uh, the, the Thin Red Line, which is a movie that Elias Coteus <laughs> stars in. And asked him to sign it, and so he just signed it, Chris Maloney. <laughs> but yeah, who else was supposed to take the role of my beloved Elias Coteus? Johnny Depp was considered, Ooh. as was Keanu Reeves, Christian Slater, Lou Diamond Ooh. Phillips, famous for playing Richie Valens and my beloved La Bamba, Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Jason Patrick, who I think was Kiefer Sutherland's best friend, and then when Kiefer Sutherland cheated on Julia Roberts and their engagement broke up, she started dating Jason Patrick. Good for him. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's from our Hook episode. Uh, Brian Austin Green, Alex Winter, Gary Daniels, I don't know, and River Phoenix. Wow. Oh, and while we're on random t- uh, casting bits, Toshishiro Obata, the guy who plays Tatsu, the Shredder's second-in-command, was actually literally the deadliest man on the set. He created his own style of Japanese swordsmanship called Shinkendo, which is taught um, in apparently dojos worldwide. And he wrote a book about samurai swordsmanship called Crimson Steel, which fucking whips. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (gasps) Good one, Dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But now we must arrive at the grueling conditions this movie was shot under. Yes, they started shooting in North Carolina in July in 70-pound suits. Again, North Carolina in July, 70-pound suits. Here's Paeus on that extremely uncomfortable process. Quote, we would suit up from toe up to the neck. Then the head would go on. Then they would glue the head to the body so that it was all seamless. Then you were in there from morning to lunch break. We would each lose at least five pounds, just presumably through sweat. We would just freak out, and you would hear one of us go, take the head off, 
Take the hell up. Take it off. <laughs> Your blood was There's literally boiling. There's rats in boiling. here, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Your blood was literally boiling, and then they would shoot compressed air <laughs> in our faces. Eventually, they made a little air-conditioned bubble that we would go into. And one of the stuntmen later said they needed to drink a gallon of water per day to keep hydrated inside the hot suit, which would probably have the unintended side effect of having to then remove Good the, Lord. the uh, yeah. suit to go to the bathroom. I can't imagine. Also, they were sculpted out of latex, which is not a famously uh. water-friendly substance. And so... Since obviously a good number of scenes take place in a sewer, there was a fair amount of uh, falling. Um, the opening scene of them just walking through the sewer took something like eight or nine hours and nearly 40 takes because they just kept falling. Magic Kubrick directing oh, that. <laughs> and I guess the sewers also caused a problem because the suits were so huge that they couldn't fit in normal size manholes. Mm-hmm. So they had to make larger custom sized ones. And I guess they had this plan to make like an underground, like for the sewer to make like an underground room that was like eight, like they're just going to dig eight feet into the ground. But then when they got to five feet, it all started flooding and like collapsing it on itself. Yeah, man. They couldn't even relax all the way in these things. Um, Stephen Barron said, we built them these little horses, like sawhorses to sit on. That was the only comfortable position in which they could rest rather than take the head off and then spend half an hour putting it back on. They would go into these resting positions on these jury rigged seats. (laughs) And he said, it was sort of like a Damien Hirst exhibition. (laughs) And these suits were so cumbersome that they obviously impeded the actors' movements. So they actually had to shoot them moving at a slower frame rate and then speed it up in post-production to make it seem like they were moving at a normal speed. Another fun thing to uh, picture is that since they were filming close to the Wilmington airport, the radio frequencies the technology used would get crossed with the airport a la Spinal Tap. So they would just start (laughs) spouting airport jargon randomly. (laughs) Or as Baron colorfully (laughs) explains, suddenly Michelangelo's mouth would get crazy, like spinning, and his eyes would just go dead and his lids would just shut. (laughs) So at at random parts, you would just have them be possessed essentially (laughs) oh i love that speaking of on-set stuff i guess the farmhouse where the turtles hide out is actually located in the city of northampton massachusetts where the turtles creators kevin laird and peter eastman first met and i think where they were living when they created them so that was cool it's also cool for me as a massachusetts yeah i figured to go out there sometimes it's cool town uh we have our obligatory robin williams is the best moment uh judith hogue (laughs) who plays april was finishing a movie called cadillac man with robin williams at the time and doing pre-pro on turtles at the same time so she'd fly out from the cadillac man set on friday to do pre-pro on turtles and at some point robin was like man you've been you know banging out of here like a bat out of hell what are you where are you going and she was a little embarrassed to actually tell him because it's I'm doing a movie called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> but turns out Robin was a huge fan of the comics and owned all of them. Of course he was. Which, as you remember, was an expensive proposition at the time. And she said he lost his mind when she told him and was so excited for her to be in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I guess lent her some of the, the earlier, rarer comic books that she used as research to get into the character. I, love I mean, that. of course he yeah. loved this. He named his daughter Zelda yeah. after the after the video yeah. game. Like, this makes total sense. I love that. Uh, also considered for the role of April early on at least, with Jennifer Beals, Marissa Tomei, Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman, Melanie Griffith, Sean Young, Lorraine Bracco, Winona Ryder, and Brooke Shields. <laughs> and this gets us into probably one of my favorite anecdotes about the production of this movie. Apparently, the Henson family were super into bowling 
and Jim Henson was, he was a kegler. He, he was very good at bowling. <laughs> and there was a local bowling alley that I guess flipped their operating hours to accommodate the shoot so that the cast and crew would wander in in the early morning hours after shooting all night. And Jim Henson would literally be the last person in this bowling alley. And someone would have to remind him that he needed to sleep before shooting resumed in the evening because he was such a passionate about bowling and <laughs> passionate about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I guess. But despite his apparent enthusiasm during the production, Henson later said he was dissatisfied with the final film due to the violent overtones, calling it, quote, excessive, pointless, and not his style. And making this even sadder, I'm pretty sure this was Jim Henson's last major film project. The uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie was released just two months before he died, I think. That's right. And things got weird when the film's sequel included a tribute to Jim Henson, and Henson's kids were said to consider the credit inappropriate due to his mixed feelings about working on the original. Anyway, on a related note, director Steve Barron was fired by the studio towards the end of the production because they thought his vision was too dark. I guess Sally Menke was fired, too. The final cut of the movie was not made by the director, and the tone of the theatrical versions changed significantly from what he had in mind. Some jokes were added to please the kids who only knew the turtles from the cartoon, and some of the more serious scenes were axed. And among the deleted scenes, there was uh, Michelangelo suffering from depression <laughs> following Splinter's kidnapping, and also a sequence where Leonardo engages in intense, Rocky-style training as he prepares to avenge Raphael's beating at the hands of the Foot Clan. And there's also a great deleted scene at the very end of the movie, uh, which you can see on YouTube. After the Turtles have defeated Shredder and are celebrating on the rooftop, April and Danny head to a comic book publisher to pitch an idea about walking, talking, fighting turtles. <laughs> and the publisher rejects the idea, thinking that it's too outlandish, too far-fetched. And then pan over to see the Turtles watching all this through a window. That's, me that's medium funny. Um, nobody thought this movie was going to be a hit. In both of those oral histories, Barron talks about running into Tony Scott, director of Top Gun, in New York and telling him what he was working on and Tony being like, oh, and just <laughs> walking away. Uh, in March of 1990, they did some early screenings with executives from Playmates who Eastman said thought it was the worst movie they'd ever seen. They felt like it was something that was going to kill the toy line. But of course, the second they screened it for kids, the test scores went through the roof. Barron said at the time they were of the mind that they'd have a good opening weekend at 7 mil. And then the film opened at 25 mil, breaking the all-time non-holiday, non-summer record. Then the second week, wow. it did another 19 million. It subsequently picked up the record as the highest grossing independent film of all time, which it would hold until the Blair Witch Project. Something like 202 million, right? On a 13 mil budget, man. That's wild. Wow, that's insane. So then they had the Turtles do stuff like Regis and Kathy Lee and photo shoots for People magazine and costume. But the best story about this time comes down to Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters at the time was famous for doing these interviews that got very teary. She would probe people about all the sad shit in their lives. And they would, oh, everyone would start crying on Barbara's show. So they wanted to rig Donatello's head up to cry. <laughs> <laughs> and the, Hen That's the Henson shop had a little squeeze pump that was going to send water out of the eye holes in the costume, but it malfunctioned and shot out a flood of water. And so the guy in the suit <laughs> right. had to pretend that he was having like a full on hysterical breakdown <laughs> and subsequently spraying water all over Barbara Walters. Which she, <laughs> on YouTube? I think it is. She was not happy about it. 
Now, we must talk about Coming Out of Their Shells, a.k.a. the live-action musical tour, heavily underwritten by Pizza Hut, in which the Turtles play instruments, sing, fight, and dance on stage. Also, Shredder raps. This was the work of theater nerds and musicians named Bob Bijan and uh, Godfrey Nelson, who actually came up with this idea independently of the movie or show. Someone had given Bijan a, a Bijan? I, I don't know. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, a copy of one of the comics, and he and Nelson just started writing songs around it of their own volition uh, as a sort of gritty sesame on ice kind of deal. They wanted something that parents could take their kids to and not feel completely put out as they would by seeing Sesame Street on ice. Um, they literally cold-called Eastman and Laird and went to Massachusetts to pitch them two months before the movie opened in theaters. And the creators gave them the okay. They said, you want to do a musical on Turtles? Sure, we don't give a shit. But they couldn't turn up the 50K for licensing, so they cold-called another guy, a producer named Steven Lieber, who had been instrumental in bringing the Moscow Circus to the U.S. Once he ponied up the 50K, they then cold-called the marketing department for Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, and Domino's to try and get the money to underwrite this thing. Now, by this point, the movie had come out, so this wasn't quite as hard of a sell, so Pizza Hut went in for it for a big way. Maybe to offset the fact that Domino's got the product placement in the movie. Maybe they were like playing a little catch up there. Yeah, that makes sense. What kind of pizza house were you as a kid? Were you, were you Domino's or uh, Little Caesars? We did Little Caesars. Papa John's? Like, yeah, we did Papa Little John's. Caesars and then Papa John's later because they had the garlic sauce. Yeah, we were a Domino's <laughs> household. Yeah. Pizza Hut bought three million records up front, buying it before we'd even really done the master recordings. They bought them on the demos. They bought three million records at $3 a piece. Bayon told, told GameSpot last year. They also committed to, at the time, an astronomical $20 million advertising campaign and a broadcast of a primetime television commercial. So they record this record uh, in New York and Los Angeles with producer Keith Forsey, who recorded Billy Idol and co-wrote Don't You Forget About Me with Simple Minds. And they ready a live pay-per-view broadcast from f***ing Radio City Music Hall. Just oh the notion gosh. that these guys, of their own volition, wrote a bunch of songs, cold-called every party involved. Like, this thing was, like, written in the stars. They also secure uh, an appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show, during which it is heavily implied that April and the Turtles have had sex. It's a weird interview. You can see it. And they also got to sing the national anthem at a Yankees game. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, the whole April thing is kind of weird. There was an episode, I think, called April Fools, where she shows up in a gown and not her trademark yellow raincoat, and for some reason, and they basically catcall her. So, yeah, this all scans. There's a lot of uh, Turtles April-themed porn out there, I'm just telling you. Oh, is it worse? Or, is it better or worse? Than Hexus? Than the Hexus Fern Gully, yeah. Couldn't say. Depends on your personal preference. Um, or your definition of better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that the show is frequently remembered for is that the turtles are wearing denim vests with sweatshirts tied around their waists and that they're conspicuously missing their shells. And this was because two of the turtle actors had passed out midway through the first in-costume run of the two-hour show due to the stress of dancing and fighting in these costumes. So they just axed the shell part of it and gave them this grunge look. Um, <laughs> they also nearly torched the Radio City curtain in front of the FDNY. Uh, Bajan said we were doing a run through and final dress rehearsal in front of the fire marshals with all the pyrotechnics and everything, which entailed sewer lids shooting off the stage and the turtles being raised up on elevators through them. 
There were too many fireworks in one of them, and the sewer lid <laughs> catches on fire and goes through the ceiling where the big red Radio City Music Hall curtain is, and the fringe of it starts to catch fire. That was very auspicious right before opening, he said. <laughs> anyway, this also launched with a two-hour making-of documentary, which you can still see. The soundtrack album is still out there. Toured for 40 dates, and while wow. I cannot find the sales figures... It clearly lives on in the hearts and minds of the internet because one of the songs has been reissued as a limited press for record store days. Oh my and, gosh. And uh, a toy company produced a line of action figures based on how they're dressed in the stage show. There's even a group of fans that cosplay as the band to perform all of the music at conventions, and they have solicited the original costumes in which to do so. Such is the power of the turtles. We've reached the end. Cowabunga. But I want to go out on a Henson quote that uh, Tilden remembers from shooting in North Carolina. And he says, Henson told him, if you want to be fascinating, be fascinated. If wow. you're fascinated, you are in a state of fascination. You will then be fascinating. Your art will be fascinating. And wow, that's great. I just think that there's a really nice spirit of wonder and... Yeah, fascination that, that runs through this franchise. People were captivated by this in a way that it seems impossible on paper. They're Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It seems ridiculous on paper, and yet it spawned this incredibly durable and resonant for a lot of people franchise because of the love that went into it at nearly every level. And it's outside of the graphic novel, the movies and cartoon show it reminds me of the Muppets, man. The, the turtles aren't really cruel or edgy, mm. at least not in anything more than like a sort of generous PG kind of way. I think the worst thing any one of them does in the movie is just yell damn really loud. Damn! Uh, from a rooftop. There's just like a, such a sweet, goofy little kid energy to them. And despite it's becoming this multi-tentacled, many million of dollar media arm, I just think that musical is just the most indicative way of how the spirit of this franchise takes hold of people. Two guys of their own <laughs> volition decided to write a bunch of songs about the Ninja Turtles and cold called it and, and got all these people, got all this money, got Pizza Hut on board and launched a nationwide tour just because of how much they loved it. I mean, if that's not follow your bliss, I don't know what is. <laughs> Folks, thank you for listening. And everyone say it with me now. Cowabunga, Cowabunga dudes. Cowabunga, dudes. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.